This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It is January 31st, 2022. Another sunny Monday morning here in Southern California. Actually, no, it's not. I'm not going to lie. It is actually Saturday afternoon. Of course, I will publish this. I will release this on Monday morning. But it is Saturday afternoon. And here I sit. Let me see. Is it sunny? No, it's actually not sunny. It's an overcast Saturday afternoon here in Southern California. And what have I been doing all day? Well, I spent a lot of time preparing for this episode. So I did a lot of research, a lot of writing. And I'm also just sitting here waiting for football. There is no football today. Uh, Tomorrow is championship weekend in the NFL. So AFC and NFC championship games. Looking forward to that. Um... For those of you in the rest of the country, I don't know which game sounds interesting to you, uh, but for those of us here in Southern California, or in California in general, um, it is the battle for California. So we've got the LA Rams against the San Francisco 49ers, and just a crazy interesting um, partnership or relationship between those two teams, right? So I, I think the San Francisco 49ers have won the last six games in a row or something like that. And here you have the LA Rams, which is this massive team with, you know, massive budget. They have just pulled in super talent after super talent from the, from the other teams throughout the last couple of years. And so really on paper, the LA Rams should win this game. But I think there might be that whole big brother, little brother thing going on. You know how that works, right? How the little brother often loses to the older brother simply because of mindset, right? They may be bigger, stronger, faster, but for some crazy reason, just because it's my older brother, I I can't beat him. So I wonder if a little bit of that's going on. But anyway, we will find out tomorrow. And actually, when this releases on Monday, we'll all know who won. So there's that. Um, one other thing before we get too far in, um, I know this is a series called Conscience Driven Therapy, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But I didn't want to gloss over the fact that this is part of the Transcend Human podcast. And if we look back at the number of episodes we've done on the podcast, we'll see that we've reached a milestone and a pretty big milestone. We are on episode 100. Now that that's awesome. I mean, that just blows my mind that we've been going this long. And I know I say this a lot, but 100 is a milestone. I just didn't want to sweep by without saying anything. So there you have it, episode 100. But more importantly, we are in the Conscience Driven Therapy series. So today we leave behind the things we cannot control And we get to move into the good stuff, right? The things we can control. So this is where conscience-driven therapy really shines. And today we start discussing the things that we're able to do as we move toward health and healing. 
So like I said, chapter four, things we can control, and let's go. Minute of transparency. So I called this one, is conscience-driven therapy right for me? Um, so as we move into the meat of the book, as we start talking about our role in this like self-help framework or this therapy model that we're talking about, it's really the perfect time to address some of the elephants in the room. So let's work through these elephants quickly so we can get into our topic for today. Elephant number one, is conscience-driven therapy for everyone? Simple answer, no. Conscience-driven therapy is at its core a Christian-based approach to life, to dealing with the human condition. So people who don't identify as Christian may not find this easy to accept at all. Um, you know, if if I was a Muslim and I was listening to this podcast or reading through this content and I had a strong belief in Muhammad and the God of the Muslim faith, some of this stuff just is not going to make sense. Like it's a, it's a pretty big stretch to go from that to accepting what we talk about, especially in the first two or three chapters of Conscience Driven Therapy. So obviously it's not for everyone. Next, Conscience Driven Therapy is also very similar to uh, two other kinds of therapy cognitive, behavioral, and rational emotive in that it's a highly cognitive treatment modality, meaning that there's a lot of thinking involved, namely thinking about our thinking. Say that a few times twice, right? So a lot of self-analysis, which requires a high level of cognitive functioning. Because of this, conscience-driven therapy may not be as effective with kids, or with lower functioning adults. The effectiveness definitely spikes when you are a high functioning adult. Elephant number two, is conscience-driven therapy able to address every possible mental health problem? Again, simple answer is no. Since conscience-driven therapy is very similar to cognitive behavioral and rational emotive therapy, it follows that it should be useful in treating the same types of disorders. Now, according to the Mayo Clinic, cognitive behavioral therapy is useful in dealing with the following. Depression, anxiety, phobias, PTSD, sleep disorders, eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, substance use disorders, bipolar, schizophrenia, and sexual disorders. Now, that's a pretty broad spectrum. And there's actually a few on there that I'm not really 100% sure about. Um, in fact, the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Clinic at thecbtclinic.com um, has its own set of concerns about that list. Um, and they, they say that various forms of severe depression, bipolar, and schizophrenia may not actually be very suitable for cognitive behavioral therapy. And I would agree. Conscience-driven therapy is very helpful in in a wide number of common mental health issues. But when it reaches a certain level where, you know, maybe in schizophrenia where um, psychosis is at a really high level, it just does not make sense to work with a person in that state of mind through a therapy that's highly cognitive. Anyway, uh, all that to say, lots of mental health issues we face today, especially those that have risen after the pandemic started, um, Conscience-driven therapy is able to handle the majority of those. 
Now, elephant number three, final elephant. Is conscience-driven therapy appropriate for therapy? If I was a therapist, is it appropriate for clinical sessions? My wife and I were talking about this the other day, and the question really is, can a clinician actually use conscience-driven therapy in a therapy session with a client? Now, if you are a clinician, you'll understand why I'm asking this question, right? At issue is the fact that conscience-driven therapy is a spiritual-based therapy, right? It flat out says you have to make decisions about things like God, Satan, the controversy, the sin virus, all of those sorts of things. And conscience-driven therapy has a very specific view of each of these things. So as a clinician, if conscience-driven therapy was used in therapy, wouldn't that be considered unethical? And this is why I refer to this as an elephant in the room, because the answer is yes. If you are a clinician and you force, in quotes, end quote, force a client to walk through conscience-driven therapy, it would be unethical because you would be unethically pushing a religious belief system upon another person in a difficult time in their life. They may be more impressionable, more susceptible at that time in their life, which makes it all the more important to allow them to come to conclusions on their own. This improves their locus of control, allows them to feel more confident in their abilities, and allow them to self-moderate in the future. So, does this mean that you can't use conscience-driven therapy as a clinician? Not at all. You just have to be really clear as to why you're using it and careful and know when it's appropriate. So if you work as a general clinician in a non-Christian or non-religious um, area, a hospital or a clinic or something like that, I would stay away from it. If you hang a shingle on your door that says, I'm a Christian counselor, and and that's kind of the way you represent yourself, then you obviously have a lot more leeway. It's assumed that you're going to use clinical tools and involve spiritual concepts in the therapy process. And conscience-driven therapy doesn't have to be used in its complete form. Just as cognitive behavioral therapists don't use every single clinical tool ever made for conscience behavioral therapy, so too you don't have to use every little piece of conscience-driven therapy with your clients. So you can pick and choose the tools and the exercises that seem to work for your client. And one more thing, I would take it one step further and say, um, not only if I was a Christian counselor would I be able to use conscience-driven therapy, but if I was going to, I would for sure explain that on my website or include it in my professional bio somehow. That way, a client is 100% aware of the fact that you're a Christian counselor and that potentially you would, you would use conscience-driven therapy in session, okay? And then it's up to them, right? They can decide if they want to engage with you or not in the counseling process. This is no different than me putting out there that I'm a, a therapist that believes in psychoanalysis, and a client may decide for that or against that, depending on the understanding that that's what I do and that's how I practice. Okay, enough with the elephants, but they are important to be sure. And as we get further into this, we need to be clear that conscience-driven therapy is not a blanket treatment model for everyone everywhere. It's not a global easy button, right? I'm not saying that this works for everyone, 
just offer it to a friend and, you know, it's like hitting the easy button. They'll read it, they'll hear it, and they'll be fixed, right? So now that we have that straight, let's jump into our content for today. Chapter four, the first steps toward health and healing. We're going to walk through three different segments. The first is the conscience-driven therapy niche. Number two, the eternal election and the antidote to the sin virus. And three, understanding our value. Number one, the conscience-driven therapy niche. So let me start by saying that this segment could literally have been an entire episode. But since we don't have time for that, I'll try to squeeze it in here as simply as possible. It's really important stuff, though, because it helps us understand the clinical roots of conscience-driven therapy, both the spiritual and the psychological landscape that it grew out of. So, like we discussed in Chapter 1, conscience-driven therapy is tied directly to controversy theory. So, it's the obvious next step. It's the action steps after the theory. It's the how after hearing the why. And we also discussed the fact that controversy theory and conscience-driven therapy are both based on a Christian worldview, hence the content in chapter one of this series, which included information about God, Satan, the fall, the controversy, the sin virus, etc., etc., right? If that wasn't a clue, you probably weren't paying attention. But after that, um, the next step is to kind of discuss the other side of the coin, right? The psychology or the science behind conscience-driven therapy and how it stacks up against some of the more modern or more popular treatment modalities out there today. The forms of therapy that are offered if you were to just walk into a clinic. Um, so what makes it unique? What makes it similar? Uh, what does it do that other therapies can't do? Things like that. Now, we're not going to walk through every flavor of therapy and do point-by-point point comparisons and all of that. Though at some point it might be fun to do that in the future, right? For now, let's just look at some of the more popular therapies, the mainstream flavors, if you will, according to Talkspace.com. So you have client-centered therapy, also referred to as Rogerian therapy because it was started by Carl Rogers. Very focused on the client, very non-directive. Therapist spend a lot of time encouraging the client to work through their situation from all different angles. Uh, the therapist will typically provide high levels of empathy throughout the clinical process. Next, you have cognitive behavioral therapy, which we talk about a lot about on this uh, show. Therapists are much more active in this treatment process, and the main focus is on dysfunctional thinking and how it leads to maladaptive behavior and unhealthy negative emotions. The big idea is that by changing your thinking, your behavior and your emotional state will improve. Now, a subset of this could be rational emotive behavior therapy or REBT. Um, it's a really good example of that type of therapy. Um, next, we have existential therapy. So this is the humanistic family of therapies. Uh, the main focus here is on your existence and your personal journey throughout life, managing things like isolation, meaninglessness, mortality, freedom. Uh, a good example of this is gestalt therapy, where the main focus is on the present, recognizing your attitude, your feelings, and your perceptions of life rather than the actual interpretations thereof. Next, we have psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory. 
huge focus on the unconscious or underlying motivations. It's a very old form of therapy based on Sigmund Freud's work. And it's not really used much these days. I mean, I think you can still see a psychoanalysis if you really think that that's going to be the most helpful thing for you. Um, but again, not very popular. And then finally, you have dialectic behavior therapy, similar to cognitive behavioral with a big focus on problem solving and acceptance. Also focuses on managing emotions and interpersonal relationships. So there you go. Some of the top forms of therapy today. Now, if you decided to see a therapist, there's a good chance that you would probably fall into one of those categories, depending on who you chose. Now, Talkspace goes on to list a bunch of other less common therapies, and while we won't go into those, there is one that sticks out because it's something that we really need to kind of talk through here because it applies to cognitive behavioral therapy and conscience-driven therapy. So this form of therapy is called bibliotherapy, and according to Talkspace, it describes it as a form of therapy using literature to improve mental health and explore psychological issues. Now, that's very vague, but in my experience, this typically refers to religious or spiritual counselors who use their sacred text, if you will, to set their clients straight. So, for example, a Christian pastor would mainly use the Bible when working with a client. Uh, a rabbi would use the Torah. Uh, an imam would probably use the Quran. And not just the spiritual leaders of a church, but Clinicians, counselors, or therapists who strongly identify with those religious beliefs may also use that sacred text with their clients in, in therapy, right? To set boundaries or to suggest um, appropriate ways to think or behave. So why are we talking about this? Why is this important? Well, because it will help us see where conscience-driven therapy fits into this world of mental health treatment. So let's go back to my original question, the one that led me to research and eventually write controversy theory. So I had just left grad school and I was ready to dive into my field as a clinician, um, but I quickly became disillusioned when I started working with people. The simple, simple explanation is that there seemed to be two different sandboxes I could play in. I could call myself a traditional clinician, but only if I checked my spiritual baggage at the door right? Or I could call myself a Christian counselor, uh, and it was expected that I would check most of my traditional treatment modalities at the door and use the Bible as part of therapy. See my dilemma? In my head, this didn't make sense because I wanted both, because I saw both as important. So it would be like having to choose between religion or science, but not being able to have both. To me, that just doesn't compute. I am a very spiritual person, but I also believe in science. I believe that God created our little planet using science and using math, and that when we get to heaven, we're going we're gonna to get to see the full complexity of what that actually looks like. We'll, we'll be able to fully understand the science and the math be, behind everything that ever happened on planet Earth and how they really work. In the same way, I wanted my spirituality and the science of psychology to work together. But just as our political system has been polarized, so too is the field of mental health. I felt like I was being forced to pick a side, to only play for one team. And since I wasn't really willing to do that, I ran into some problems. So I got to the place where I had to figure things out on my own. I had to put my thoughts down on paper in order to get a good look at them. 
This is what led to controversy theory, the high-level theory I wrote back when I was still in the field, and eventually conscience-driven therapy, which is the practical application we're walking through today. So believe it or not, at some point after writing controversy theory, I left the mental health field altogether to pursue a career in web development, believe it or not. Apparently, I was never able to reconcile the issues that I faced, at least not in the field, while working as a clinician. But from this vantage point, no longer being knee-deep in the field of counseling, I found a new sense of freedom, right? I found this ability to document my research as a big idea. I can write about it, talk about it, put it on the podcast. And at the end of the day, people can take it or leave it. It really doesn't matter to me. I find it helpful for myself, and I think that there are a lot of other people who would find it helpful, but you can take it or leave it. Now, this is very different from the therapist-client relationship, right, where you have obligations to not push your ideas on the person seeking help, especially when it comes to your spirituality or your religious beliefs. But let's get back to conscience-driven therapy and how it stacks up against those other treatment modalities we talked about. So we're going to flip over and we're going to start with bibliotherapy. So bibliotherapy, for the Christian at least, means having the Bible forced down your throat. Now I know that sounds a little harsh and it's really, I'm stereotyping the entire field, I apologize. Um, but you could describe it as being beat over the head with the Bible, right? And this is coming from a person who believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So if there was ever a book that you should be beat over the head with, it probably is the Bible. But we'll get to why that's a problem here in a minute. So I put it this way because I feel like there is a very healthy way to use the Bible, and there's an unhealthy way. And unfortunately, I've seen and heard stories about the unhealthy side when it comes to counseling. I think one, one example of this is a friend of mine went to see the pastor at his local church who was feeling depressed, and he thought that he needed to kind of just check in and see if he could get some help from the pastor. Now, this wasn't the senior pastor or even a speaking pastor. This was the pastor of care and counseling. So you would assume that this person knew a little bit about counseling, right? But in the first session, the pastor literally spent the entire time reading my friend verses out of the Bible, verses about joy and being joyful and being happy and along with verses that suggested if you weren't feeling that way, you must be doing something wrong or there must be something wrong with you. Needless to say, my friend left the office feeling worse than when he entered. Now, unfortunately, this seems to be a pretty common story when it comes to straight-up Christian bibliotherapy. There's not a lot of empathy, not a lot of talk about a person's upbringing or their life circumstances or things that they've walked through in life, traumatic events that may be impacting them still. Just read your Bible and be joyful. Now, again, I know I'm just scratching the surface here and I'm being a little bit stereotypical, a little bit judgmental. I understand that there are probably amazing bibliotherapists out there right now who are fuming at the way that I'm talking about their field because I am kind of leaning to one side of rather than the other, and I apologize for that. Um, I believe that there are many amazing Christians using the Bible as the source of truth and at the same time doing a great job as a counselor, showing care and concern, um, all of those things. So that said, I'll just leave it there for now. But to summarize, conscience-driven therapy cannot simply be bibliotherapy. Using Bible verse after Bible verse to fix a person in the clinical setting 
there has to be more than that, right? It has to function in the way that a pastor does when he or she takes a passage of scripture and brings it to life with new revelations that the average person never saw before, or the way that an evangelist takes Bible prophecy and tries to simplify it so that people new to faith are able to get on board without having a PhD first. All of that is true for conscience-driven therapy. The Bible is an important piece of the puzzle, but it has to be used in ways that are helpful to the counseling process. Now, let's talk about some of the more common therapies we talked about above. So client-centered, cognitive, behavioral, rational, emotive, existential, uh, gestalt, psychoanalysis, dialectic, right? The obvious thing we need to understand about these therapies is that they are meant to exist outside of the spiritual realm. In fact, some of their names even point this out on some level. So when you think of client-centered, in other words, it's all about you, right? Cognitive behavioral, it's all about your thinking and your behaving. Humanistic, that doesn't really need much explaining, does it? Psychoanalysis, because analyzing a person, a person's conscious or unconscious mind is the, is the goal. Now, looking at them from that perspective, I could easily see why we have a polarization between the two sides, right? Traditional Christians view psychology as science that does not need God, a field of scientific research attempting to replace God with human knowledge and self-awareness. So on some level, they have a point. But this is where conscience-driven therapy comes along and says, can't we all just get along? Why can't we work together? Why can't the Bible be a thing? And the science behind the way our brains work, why can't that be a thing? Not at the expense of the other, but taking the best of both and creating something really helpful. And what would it look like if that actually happened? I would suggest it could look a lot like conscience-driven therapy. I know, that was a very long explanation, and I'm sorry for that but I think it's helpful to know where conscience-driven therapy came from and that it's not just a variation on a theme. It's not a new form of bibliotherapy for Christian counselors, and it's not a slightly modified humanistic approach like gestalt therapy or client-centered or CBT or REBT. Conscience-driven therapy is a combined or integrated treatment modality, one that is built on the foundation of the Bible, so there's your spiritual element, and one that leverages our God-given ability to analyze our thinking and behaving in order to make significant changes in our lives, which is the scientific or the psychological element. Now, this makes conscience-driven therapy very unique and very powerful at the same time, because conscience-driven therapy not only has the science and the psychological piece to it, but it has the spiritual side. It has the the reason behind the reason, if you will. And we'll talk more about this later in the, the book. All right, number two, the eternal election and the antidote to the sin virus. So quick reminder, we've moved from the things that we cannot control to the things that we can in chapter four. And this is where the rubber meets the road. So we've discussed all of the things that exist outside of our control right? We've talked about the galactic battle, the sin virus, the DNA, um, negative things that have happened in our past. And we were able to look at some of those things that happened in our past and admit that they may have produced a level of trauma in our life, right? Trauma that will impact us in some way or way, shape, or form in the present 
and or the future. But this is where things start to get good, right? Because this is where our thinking and our behaving start to matter, where we get to exercise control over our freedom of choice and determine how we want our lives to play out. So we have a lot of ground to cover over the next seven chapters, but this week we start with the most important decisions we can make in life. These are foundational decisions that will set the stage for everything that comes next. So let's go back to a couple of core elements from controversy theory, specifically this idea that there is an eternal election going on and that we must vote, and the idea that there is an antidote available for the sin virus, one that we must choose to receive. But first, let's talk about the eternal election. So the election illustration takes the spotlight off of the battle between God and Satan and directly speaks to our freedom of choice in that battle, right? This idea that we aren't being forced one way or the other, though Satan tries his hardest to use that tactic whenever possible. But no, at the end of the day, we have freedom of choice. We get to vote for one candidate or the other. It's an eternal election because our decision has eternal consequences. Unlike here on earth where a candidate gets a few years in office, our vote in the eternal election will have forever consequences. Now, in previous episodes, we discussed these forever consequences and the fact that they are nothing like the consequences of an earthly election, right? So in this country, uh, presidential elections are typically between two front runners, and you get to choose between the two. If your candidate loses, you simply have to wait another four to eight years to vote again. But the fact that you lost doesn't even really impact your life. Life goes on. You have the same job. You still have your family. You still drive cars. You still go to the movies. You still get to choose your own religious or spiritual beliefs. See what I mean? Even though we've become super polarized since the last election, life is still going on for most people like it did four years ago. Now, it's a little hard to see because of the pandemic. I mean, that has jacked up life, I would say, even more than um, who won the last election. Now, the eternal election isn't like this at all. In fact, looking at the two outcomes, you'd think everyone would be on the same side. It's literally that lopsided. Here's what I'm talking about. So in the eternal election, if we choose team God, we are saved from the cycle of death that exists on earth. In essence, it's a get out of jail free card, right? And you can look at jail as being death having no future to look forward to. So with God, death isn't the end. We get to live with him forever. The divine being that saw fit to create us in the first place. Now, if we choose team Satan, we're joining forces with an angry, vengeful being that knows he has no future. Satan already voted in the eternal election, and he lost by choosing to run against the God who actually created him. And he wants nothing more than to get as many of us to join him in the rebellion as possible. Unfortunately, death is still the final event in this scenario. There is no get out of jail free card. When death arrives for you or me, it's the end, the forever end. And then there's the third option, which really isn't an option. But some people just choose to opt out of the election altogether, and they just choose not to vote. They say, 
I'm not part of that eternal election you're talking about, so just leave me alone. But unfortunately, these people are blinded to the truth that we are all part of the election. We don't get a free pass. Nobody does. And choosing not to vote is actually a vote in disguise. It's a vote for Satan because for the time being, Satan is the ruler of this world. So the only way not to vote for Satan is to see that God's offer is amazing and choose him over Satan. Again, this seems like a no-brainer, right? Almost like if I offered you a $100 bill or a $1 bill, which one would you choose? It's literally that obvious. And yet, that's not the way it works, right? It's not that black and white to everybody, obviously, or everyone would be joining Team God. So what's going on here? Why can't people see that it's eternal life with your creator or death? Why can't people see that? Well, if I had the answer to that question, I would probably be very wealthy. Um, That is a question with eternal significance and one that is not easily answered. I mean, I guess I could hypothesize, right? It could be things like some people still haven't actually heard it presented like that. Maybe some people don't know that they even have the option to vote. Some people don't view God the way I do or we do uh, and can't imagine what life would be like living with some being that they've never even seen. And still others may just be too busy to care. They're too busy living for the scratch. Now, I should explain that, shouldn't I? What I mean by scratch. So I think I first heard this presented back in church, back uh, at a church we were attending in Indiana. Uh, It was during a weekend message series. And it's really stuck with me ever since because of the illustration that the speaker used to get his point across. On the stage, there was this huge white rope that stretched all the way from one stage, side of the stage to the other. I think it was about waist high, maybe a little bit higher. Uh, And because it went backstage, you couldn't really see where it started or where it ended. And this was very intentional. And you'll understand why here in a minute. So the speaker discuss the rope as God's timeline, the infinite amount of time that has existed and will exist in the future. The rope itself illustrated the lack of time or the fact that God exists outside of our understanding of time, where there are no beginnings and endings the way we have them here on earth. And in his universe, time isn't really even a thing, right? He has always existed and he always will exist. So time does not affect him. Next, the speaker took out a Sharpie and he walked to the middle of the stage and using the marker, he made a thin black line around the rope, just big enough so that if you're sitting at the farthest seat in the auditorium, you would be able to see that little black mark. And he called it the scratch. And he explained that this is your life. This is the 70 plus years you get on earth in comparison to the rope of infinite time. He then went on to flesh out the illustration. He said, how crazy is it that our lives amount to such a small scratch on the infinite timeline? How crazy is it that our creator views us as so valuable and important, important enough to try to come and save us? And how crazy is it that so many of us fall into this habit of living for the scratch, living like the 70 plus years is all we get. So live it up, grab all you can grab, and don't think much deeper than that. Again, I thought it was an amazing illustration, 
and it has helped keep me grounded ever since. Um, and it helps helps to keep me from getting caught up in living for the scratch myself. But it's also a good illustration of why the eternal election is so important. If you're living for the scratch, the eternal election may not even seem like that big of a deal. But if you see your life as just a scratch, then the eternal election becomes all the more important. Because in this scenario, you can't imagine living one small little life and calling it good. Because you see the possibility of living forever, an eternity of lives, and that's even more desirable. Okay, so the next choice we need to make uh, after we've voted in the eternal election is actually part of the vote itself. Now, I split them out because I want you to see the importance of each part. But at the end of the day, if you choose Team God in the eternal election, you are choosing to accept the antidote to the sin virus. Now, in controversy theory and in chapter one of Conscience Driven Therapy, we talked about the sin virus, right? That nasty little bug that was found in Lucifer, came to earth with Satan, and was passed to us um, because we fell for Satan's diabolical scheme to use us as his little pawns in the controversy. And unfortunately, the sin virus is 10 times more effective than COVID-19. In fact, it's so effective, it has a 100% infection rate. And though we don't all die immediately, the rate of death from the sin virus is still hovering at around 100%. Not to mention the impact that the sin virus has had on our little planet. So what was once a shining jewel in the universe has quickly become a deteriorating mass of infected elements. Not just the elements themselves, but also deteriorating because of the stress we put on the environment with our behavior and our lust for innovation and technology and advancement. Combined, it has caused this deterioration to advance rapidly, with the obvious results being death, right? Just as we all succumb to the sin virus, so too, Earth is on a collision course for extinction. Unless God steps in first and keeps us from that eventuality. But I don't really want to talk about the effects of the sin virus in this section. That was just a summary to make sure that we're all on the same page. Where I want to go with this section is much more positive. It's the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. It's the needle in the haystack, the pearl you find after opening thousands of clamshells. This positive thing is nothing less than the antidote to the sin virus. And like we said, it goes hand in hand with our role in the eternal election, our vote in the eternal election. Because if we voted for God in the eternal election, we also accepted his free gift, which is the antidote to the sin virus. Now, let's review the title of this chapter real quick. Chapter 4 the first step toward health and healing. As we discussed, this is the first chapter on the things that we can control. And these are two of the most important choices that we need to make in order to grab the reins of our lives and head the horse in the right direction. And this is where we're going to start, right? Voting in the eternal election and accepting the antidote to the sin virus. Now I know, let's reiterate, this may be a sticking point for many people right? Especially people who don't consider themselves Christians. Because what we're talking about is a very Christian thing to do, a very religious thing to do. First of all, admitting you believe in God. And second, actually putting your money where your mouth is and trusting him, 
with your life. But friends, we can't really start this section of the book any other way, right? I can't play it down. I can't spin it. I can't try to generalize it or make it more acceptable to a wider audience. At the end of the day, I didn't write conscience-driven therapy so it would be palatable to the widest possible audience, right? I wrote conscience-driven therapy because I believe it's the truth. And part of that truth is that we'll never make real progress in life until we answer the big three questions. Again, these came straight out of controversy theory. Question number one, where did we come from? The question of origin. Question number two, why are we here? Question of purpose. And finally, where are we going? Which is a question of destiny or destination. Now, obviously, conscience-driven therapy believes really specific things about each of those questions, right? First, where did we come from? We believe in creation, that a loving God created us. Second, what's our purpose? To have a relationship with that creator and enjoy the life that he gave us. And finally, where are we going? Well, we believe that where we go is a direct result of our vote in the eternal election and whether or not we accepted the antidote to the sin virus. Like I said, these are foundational to everything else we do in life. We must figure these things out for ourselves. Then after that, anything is possible. Now, before we leave this section, I want to discuss two important things about the antidote. So, number one, the antidote doesn't change the human condition. So, when we receive the antidote, when we accept it, life is still hard. Bad things still happen. We still struggle. And yes, we will still die at some point. However, we should feel different because we're operating with a whole new perspective, a whole new worldview. We're no longer living just for the scratch. And because of that, we may find that we're happier, more joy-filled, and more content. And that's a good thing, right? It's one of those side effects of walking with our Creator throughout the chaos of life. But the chaos is still there, and we still have to work in order to transcend human. Number two, the antidote is a long-term solution. So even though we still have problems, and death still occurs here on Earth, the antidote is in our system. It's preparing us for our future. It's a long-term solution to the sin virus, one that kicks in at the end of time. Instead of death being the end of it all, the antidote allows us to respawn, so to speak, right? To use a term from the gaming world. We pick up where we left off and we're given back the life we had. Not just our hit points, like you would have in a game. We get back our original life, our pre-sin virus life, the perfect one that was traded in for Satan's lies. Number three, understanding our value. So we've talked through two really important concepts today, right? The, the eternal election and accepting the antidote to the sin virus. But if that still seems a little rigid for you, let's bring it home with this. What we just talked about are facts right? They're givens. They're steps that we need to take in life. Yes, very Christian things, but things that I believe are universal, absolute truths that apply to every human being, regardless of who they are, whether they're Christian or not. But what I've 
probably failed to communicate up until now is that there is a relationship behind this process, behind every single one of these action steps. There is a relationship. And that relationship is what Satan wants very much to hide. He wants to downplay it. He wants to keep us from understanding it. It's the relationship between the creator and his creation, between a father and a child, between a mother and a child. It's the relationship that exists between God and each of us, whether we see it or not. The Bible calls God our heavenly father because he created us and calls us his children. But I know we hear that stuff all the time and it just goes in one ear and out the other, right? Maybe because we hear it too often. Maybe because it's hard for us to grasp the true significance behind it. Or maybe because the whole concept of God is just too abstract. But this is vital to the rest of our conversation. This whole idea that God created us, that he loves us, that we are so important to him that he actually left heaven to come rescue us. If that doesn't show us just how valuable we are, nothing will. So let's finish up with an illustration of this concept. Once upon a time, I just love stories that begin that way, by the way. Once upon a time, there was a teenage girl who grew tired of her parents and their rules. So one night, she decided to run away and live with a friend who recently graduated from high school. This friend was now 20 and she was living on her own in an apartment. The problem was the friend didn't make the best choices in life. Over time, the older girl pulled the 17-year-old into drug use. At first, it was just marijuana, smoking cigarettes, drinking, then a few pills every now and then, and before long, she was introduced to heroin. And at age 18, she found herself helplessly addicted to the strong opiate. Unfortunately, along with the drug, drug culture that she was now part of, she started experiencing other negative things, uh, including a few incidents of sexual assault and battery. One such incident led to police involvement and medical attention. The police, understanding the situation, did a little bit of research and were able to locate and notify her parents. The parents had been going out of their minds with worry. They had been looking for their daughter every day. They posted things on social media. They took out ads in the newspaper and they did interviews on the local news stations, but nothing until the day the police called. The parents dropped what they were doing and drove as fast as they could to the hospital. But when they arrived, they found that their daughter had already checked herself out, AMA. The police provided the family with a general location where they had picked up the girl and the parents drove there immediately. They knocked on doors. They rang doorbells, asked if anyone had seen their daughter. Finally, they arrived at the very apartment that their daughter was living in. But now the 21-year-old answered the door and lied to the parents, telling them she lived alone, but that she would keep an eye out for their daughter, for sure. After combing the neighborhood, a few people recognized the girl, and all of them pointed back to that same apartment as the place where she had been living. So the parents returned to the apartment, and this time when they knocked on the door, their daughter answered. She was thin unhealthy and looked as if she'd been hit by a car but it was her it was their daughter they had found her and just in time by the looks of it unfortunately the daughter wasn't happy she acted as if she didn't want them there she acted like she wasn't happy to see them and explained i'm an adult now there's nothing you can do leave me alone so the parents left with mixed emotions obviously 
glad that their daughter was alive, but also sad because there was nothing that they could do to fix the situation. So they did the next best thing. They told her how much they loved her and that she was always welcome at home, no matter what. They told her they would keep her room ready and waiting and that all she had to do was make the call. And with that, they left. A year later, there was a call. It was their daughter. She had been raped and was in the hospital again. She had been there for a few days, and when the hospital realized she was going through detox, they started detox protocol and kept her until the dangerous period was over. At this point, she was alert alert enough to see her life for what it was. There was this short window of clarity that allowed her to call home and ask for help. The parents didn't hesitate. Mom drove to the hospital. Dad drove to get her stuff from the apartment. The girl went home and never looked back never went back to that apartment, and she lived happily ever after. Now, this is not a true story, because I made it up. And since I made it up, I was able to write the ending myself. I was able to make it a happy ending, even though a lot of stories like this don't turn out this way. But at the end of the day, it's not even the happy ending that I wanted you to hear. That's not the whole point of the story. I told the story to illustrate the following pieces. First. The parents, like God, created their daughter. They loved her and wanted nothing more than to be in a relationship with her. Second, the daughter got caught up in what the world suggested was fun and exciting. She fell for the lie that the scratch was all she needed. Third, her friend wasn't really a friend at all. In fact, her roommate actually tried to keep her from the love that her parents had for her. Fourth, just like us, The daughter had options. She had the freedom of choice, whether she knew it or not. She could return to the love of her parents, or she could continue to live the way she was living and probably die in the process. And so it is with each of us. It may not be heroin, a heroin addiction where death is literally a needle away, but at the end of the day, it's still a life and death decision for each of us. If we choose against a relationship with our Heavenly Father, Death will eventually come for us, and it will be forever. But if we can push past our pride, this belief that we're not good enough, or the belief that God couldn't possibly want a relationship with me, if we can just look up from the scratch for a minute to see how much bigger life really is, we would find a relationship like no other. We would find a love that surpasses anything else the earth has to offer. And we would start to see that God has placed value on us that we don't even understand. Like the parents in the story, they were willing to go door to door in a bad neighborhood to find their daughter. And then, even when they found her, they still honored her freedom, allowing her to choose against them. In the same way, God goes to the ends of the earth, searching for each and every one of us. But when he finds us, he honors our freedom of choice. He simply explains how much he loves us that he created us, and that he wants nothing more than to be in a relationship with us. He explains that he has a home waiting for us, and that we can live forever if we want, we just have to ask. Hopefully the story was a good illustration and helps drive home the point that we need to understand our value. Before we get any further into conscience-driven therapy and all of this self-help stuff, this is really where we need to start. This is a mandatory step that we understand our value as human beings created by a loving God. 
a parent that wants nothing more than spending a little time with his kids. So let's land the plane. This week, we dove into a whole new section. We discussed the first of the things that we need to have control over and make decisions on. We need to understand our value. We need to vote in the eternal election. And we need to accept the antidote to the sin virus. So this week, ask yourself the following questions. When it comes to understanding your value, where are you at? Do you know how important you are? Do you know how much God loves you? Do you believe that you were uh, created on purpose, that you're not a mistake, that a loving God created you just the way you are and wants nothing more than to spend eternity with you? Number two, do you understand your role in the eternal election? Are you clear on the options that you have? Team God, Team Satan, and Team I'm Not Voting, apparently, which is actually a vote for the scratch. And Satan owns the scratch. And finally, what would it look like for you to accept the antidote to the sin virus, to experience a level of joy and contentment right here, right now, in your daily life, but also to have long-term security, knowing that death is not the end for you? Well, friends, chapter four is in the books. Um, This one went a bit long, but we got so many good things covered. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I had a great time covering this content with you. Uh, Next week, we continue with the things that we can control. So I hope you'll join us and come back as we walk through chapter five. Hold on to the good and release the bad. So that's it from California. Have a great week, and as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.